Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love Ireland and baseball, you're one of us. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. In today's episode, I'll be talking to John Fitzgerald, who's the founder of the Irish American Baseball Society, about the movie Emerald Diamond, which he produced. Later, our very own Jim Ward will be discussing an interview clip from MLB legend Steve Garvey, and Connor Santiani will bring us some baseball history. Let's get things started by welcoming John Fitzgerald back to the show. How are you doing, John? I'm good, Rick. Thanks. So today we are going to talk about your 2006 blockbuster movie, The Emerald Diamond. That was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but not really, because this movie is what led to the entire organization and some really great work. So some great things have come out of this movie. Why don't you first just explain to everybody listening, if they watch the movie, what they'll see. Yeah, so uh, yeah, Blockbuster, I've never heard it described like that, but that's cool. I broke even on it, so that I guess you know, to me it is a Blockbuster. Yeah, so the film, it came out in 2006, and it tells the story of baseball in Ireland from about 1995 to 2006 and at the time that was basically most of what we knew baseball in ireland to be we've learned since the film that there's you know goes back way further than that but um the the film tells this story of how the irish national baseball team was formed and um it's kind of a classic underdog story and and it's about a bunch of guys who came together because they could be the only or the first Irish national baseball team. There was nobody else that cared in Ireland. There was nobody else that could claim to be this and they wanted to do it and they wanted to put the Ireland jersey on and play baseball. And it, as you might imagine, uh, if you haven't seen the film, if you decide you're going to be a baseball team and you go into an international competition against teams that have been playing for years and years and years, you're going to get uh, beaten pretty bad. And they did, but, but that's part of the story. And building a national baseball organization in Ireland, there are some things you don't even think of when you think, how does somebody go about starting something like this? To the weather in Ireland and how it affected the field that they had to build so they could have practice. Yeah, I mean, just to, to create the team, my understanding from the film and, um, and from what I've learned since is, if you're the first, you basically just have to pay the fee and then get your uniforms and you can go on the field. And um, as far as the, the, the actual fields go in Ireland, yeah, that's that's a challenge. They they had to account for the fact that, you know, a nice day in Ireland in the middle of the summer, it might rain, you know, half the day. So you need a field that can absorb that and, and allow you to, you know, either play through it or, or sit it out and, and come back as soon as the rain stops and, and um, you know, get cold too. But um, but these guys, they're tough and, and they they play. I mean, they're, they're there to play baseball. They're not there for rainouts. There are no rainouts in Ireland. And when they first started practicing, things that we take for granted in the United States, they didn't have mounds. They had to do batting practice, practice pitching without having a mound you don't even think of those things when you're trying to build an organization. Yeah, there's so many things like that. You know, I mean, where do you get a glove in Ireland in 1996 when there's no baseball? You know, where do you get a baseball? How do you line the field? How do you teach somebody how to hit a baseball? 
a lot of these guys had played baseball in some form or had played co-ed softball in Ireland, but there were newcomers that they had to convince to play who didn't really know the game at all. And they had to teach the game to them while trying to figure out these logistics of, you know, not only how are we going to fly to the tournament, where are we going to stay, but, you know, who's going to fill out the lineup card? Who's going to explain what a hit and run is to the half of the team that's never done that. And um, just like tons of challenges like that, that you would just, you know, here in America, you show up at a baseball field, there's, there's an L screen and you can throw BP. There's nothing like that in Ireland, at least not then. And, and um, so there were a lot of obstacles that I think these guys figured out as they went along that this was not going to be as easy as they hoped. And um, to their credit, they kept playing. This movie is so interesting. If you have the chance and you can actually still pick it up by going to the Irish American Baseball Society website and there are various ways to get a hold of this DVD and see this movie, it is really, really worth the watch. There are so many things that just wouldn't cross your mind. I know there's a segment where you talk about baseball in Northern Ireland and there are teams that are made up of Catholics and Protestants on the same team, and a player says something to the effect of, it always felt like soccer and rugby were English games, and hurling and Gaelic football were Irish games. But baseball is from America, so it's neither group has like a monopoly on the game, so everybody was able to get together and enjoy it without all of the politics that might be associated with other sports. Yeah, that, that was surprising to see, you know, it's, um, we didn't know what to expect when we went up to Belfast. We didn't know if it was a Catholic sport or a Protestant sport or, 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 you know, or what. And we got up there and it was, it was baseball. That's all it was. And that was, that was probably the most powerful thing that we saw in the whole time we were filming the movie and it's interesting because baseball in England is actually really big. So you would think that maybe there was some carryover from that and it would be considered an English sport, but it wasn't. It was uh, it was a sport for whoever wanted to play. Nobody was you know, restricted from playing. Nobody felt out of place on a certain team or whatever. There were there were teams and they would travel into the Republic of Ireland for games and, and the teams from Dublin and, and the uh, the vicinity of Dublin would travel up to Belfast and you know except for a few instances where people were traveling in cars with baseball bats and and uh you know the police wanted to know why they were doing that there was no incident on the field and and that uh, that was really really cool to see and another segment sort of on those same lines Cuban baseball teams that were made of exiles who went to Ireland and then formed these baseball teams and it's so funny because some of them the guys are like in their 50s, they're pudgy Cuban guys, but they are still playing like they're 22, like they're flying around the bases. If they don't agree with the umpire's call, they are right up in his face. That segment was so fun to watch two different cultures kind of come together. You know, the Cuban culture, which has been about baseball since the beginning, and then the Irish culture where they're just trying to learn it and they're seeing the enthusiasm and the excitement that you can get from a culture that really, really loves this game. Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts of the film. Um, what happened was, my, my understanding of what happened was Shannon Airport was a re refueling stop from Havana to Moscow. And so 
people would be flying back and forth and they would just get out and they wouldn't go back. I, I guess that's uh, part of how the Cuban community in Dublin started is, is from that, um, if my information is correct. When the fields were built in 1998, there were people playing on the fields and nobody knew who they were. They would show up and there would be like cleat marks in the dirt. Nobody like who, who else is here playing baseball. And eventually they, uh, they got hooked up with the Cuban guys and, and um, the Cubans joined the league. And what was really interesting was that happened, I guess, in the early 2000s. And, and uh, pretty soon their teenage sons were playing on the Irish national baseball team because they had grown up in Ireland. Now they were playing the game of their homeland, Cuba, and they were playing it for Ireland because that was their adopted um, country. So that was that was really cool. It was just a lot of really interesting elements like that, the Belfast stories, and then just you know the guys who started the whole thing that wanted to play for Ireland because they were so proud of being from Ireland. They were so proud to play baseball for Ireland. So you have all of these things, these different uh, people who are proud of being Irish and coming together for different reasons. Um, to represent Ireland. And speaking of being proud of being Irish and wanting to wear that Ireland name across your chest, if I'm not mistaken, you got interested in the Irish national team because you wanted to join it. That's right. It was, uh, I think, like 2003 or 2002. I, I was reading an article about the Greek national baseball team. So I went on online and I looked up the Irish national team. I found it wanted to play and um, I thought I could the, the the key here is that you have to be a citizen of Ireland so you have to have a parent or a grandparent who was born in Ireland in order to get citizenship so you can play and uh, my grandmother was an Irish citizen but she was not born in Ireland so it was that little discrepancy um, that I was not aware of and I went uh, you know I, I went through about three months of training here at home in New York in anticipation of trying out for the team, you know, I was on the phone with these guys, emailing them, heard all these cool stories. I was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. At the time I was working in the film and TV industry. And um, I had no intention of making a film until the night I found out, you know, I'm not going to be able to play for this team. I was like, wow, well, that stinks. Okay. What else could I do? And then I was just like, well, you know what, I've been working in the, in the industry. Maybe I should make a film about this. And, uh, so I contacted them and I said, listen, can't play for you, but, you know, maybe I can help publicize what you're doing. And uh, and they said, yeah, sure. So I flew over with my buddy, Bill Winters, who's a uh, he's a uh, cameraman uh, or he's a director of photography. And um, he brought his camera and uh, and the rest is history, I guess. That was John Fitzgerald, founder of the Irish American Baseball Society. I'm Rick Becker. And now I will turn it over to Jim Ward on the Irish Baseball Podcast. Thanks, Rick. Today we're hearing from Los Angeles Dodger legend and an inductee in the Irish American Baseball Hall of Fame, Steve Garvey. In this clip, Steve discusses the three big league managers he played for in his major league career, Walter Alston and Tommy Lasorda with the Los Angeles Dodgers and Dick Williams with the San Diego Padres. You know, it was uh, in the beginning, it was Alston. You know, right. we, I think I told the story last time uh, about uh, being a bat boy in spring training and back in 1950-56 and Alston was a manager and then uh, you know through this wonderful great Disney story of me uh, 14 years later uh, finally getting a call up to the big leagues with the Dodgers and, and Walt um, was the manager then 
and of course, you know, we had uh, Tommy Lasorda, uh, and uh, and you know, it was I was blessed to have some great managers, uh, and uh, had Jack McKean as my general manager, as a matter of fact, uh, with the Padres. So managers and general managers have been a big part of my life, and and uh, people who I've looked up to. Uh, and there are different styles in management, as there are in business, as there are in life. Uh, Will Olson was a uh, a quiet leader at 6'3", really strong guy out of Ohio. Um, didn't have a lot of rules, but he wanted you to make sure that those rules were important. And if you broke them, then you were going to get his wrath. You know, So uh, he was that type of manager, uh, very thoughtful. When he called you over to talk to you, he knew exactly what he wanted to say. He didn't mince words. Um, he gave you great advice. Uh, he really wanted you to be ready to play every game, uh, to get the signs, uh, to be a, a, a thoughtful player, uh, and play the game as, as a good teammate. And there's nothing wrong with that. He got him in the Hall of Fame. You know? So uh, and then Tommy Lasorda comes along, and Tommy's pretty much just the opposite. I called him the P.T. Barnum of, uh, of uh, baseball, uh, loud, gregarious, uh, Desmond's words, so to speak, <laughs> and uses a lot of them and a few four-letter words, uh, usually in team meetings. Uh, but he was different. He was more of a psychologist, and he uh, he uh, knew what kind of buttons to push with each guy. And maybe uh, he had to yell at Valentine, and may had to put his arm around me when I was in a slump. So he was a one of the real great uh, managerial psychologists who knew that when he had talent, the most important thing over a long season is to be able to mentally get that talent to, to get into the gate every day or get up to the, to, to the plate or take the snap or whatever it is and give 100%. And then, of course, I had Dick Williams uh, with the Padres. So uh, I may have a record. I played for three Hall of Fame managers. Uh, Dick was a tough guy. Dick was, Dick was more of a drill sergeant. He didn't, uh, didn't take a lot of time with the young guys. Uh, he liked the older guys, especially with the Padres when, uh, when Goose Gossage and Greg Nettles joined, the three of us had experience and maybe 10 World Series amongst the uh, three of us. And he wanted us to, to take over and do the leading of the, of the young guys, which we gladly did. And, uh, and it paid off. 84, we went to the World Series for the first time with the Padres. Uh, but uh, he was a tough guy. And, and as you see, the, the quiet, you know, strong type and the gregarious type and, and another strong guy. Uh, who didn't didn't put up with a whole lot, but all three of them made the Hall of Fame. So they're different managerial style, uh, styles that lead to success. This is the Irish Baseball Podcast. That was baseball legend Steve Garvey from an interview with the Irish American Baseball Society. It was kind of interesting to hear him talk about Walter Alston, Dick Williams, and Tommy Lasorda, three really good big league managers, all with at least 1,500 wins. Of course, Dick Williams... We knew him up here in Boston when he was uh, managing the Boston Red Sox, his first managerial job in 1967, then went on to World Series uh, fame with the Oakland A's, then the California A's and Montreal Expos, and then, as Steve alluded to, his time in San Diego before finishing up in 1988 with uh, Seattle. Of course, Dick, a no-nonsense kind of guy, had a 1,500 wins in the major leagues, along with uh, Tommy Lasorda, Tommy just finishing shy of 1,600. And, you know, Tommy was one of those guys. I love, One of my favorite lines from Tommy Lasorda was, the favorite food of his was anything that ended with a vowel. <laughs> but Tommy was great. He was, he was made for television. He was made 
for the media and talking with the press and some very iconic press conferences from Tommy Lasorda, but a really energetic guy. He really put his players first. Uh, he was a big cheerleader for them, for sure. And, of course, you had uh, Walter Emmons Alston. Uh, of course, Walter's uh, probably the winningest guy out of this bunch. He had almost 2,100 wins. He had 2,040 wins out of three hundred, almost 3,658 games in the major leagues. Uh, kind of known as the quiet man, but uh, probably not so quiet, as Steve alluded to. Uh, in uh, that clip our members can get more of the interview with joe and steve garvey at irishbaseball.org i'm jim ward sending it back to rick becker on the irish baseball podcast thank you jim it's always great to hear from the great steve garvey this is the irish baseball podcast i'm your host rick becker and here's connor santiani with some baseball history hi my name's connor santiani i'm an outfielder on the irish national baseball team Today, I'd like to tell you about an Irish baseball legend named Hugh One-Arm Daly. Hugh Daly was born in Kerry in 1847. He came to America as a young boy. As a teenager, Daly wanted to be a big league pitcher. There was only one problem. Daly had lost his hand in an accident. But Daly followed his dream. He finally got his chance to pitch in a big league game at the age of 34. Daly won 23 games in 1883 and 28 games in 1884. He also threw a no-hitter and struck out 19 batters in one game, a record that lasted for nearly a century. Daly had a legendary temper. He got into fights with fans, umpires, coaches, and even his teammates. Daly once punched his own catcher in the jaw during a conference on the mound. Over the course of his career, Daly started 163 games and he completed 157 of them. His record of completing 96% of his games started will probably never be broken. For more information on Hugh One-Arm Daly and other Irish baseball legends, visit irishbaseball.org. This has been another episode of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I want to thank John Fitzgerald for joining us on the show today. You can get free access to his movie, The Emerald Diamond, by becoming a member of the Irish American Baseball Society. For Jim Ward and Connor Santiani, I'm Rick Becker on the Irish Baseball Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org and connect with us on social media. And remember, there's no place like home.